DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Kateri Tekakawitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Dr. Bunsen. Wonderful to be with you again, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this particular doctor of the church who, it's rare, isn't it, in our lifetimes to have those saints elevated to the status of doctor who have quite a background like St. Hildegard Bingen. Yes. Uh, well, she is, of course, with uh, John of Avila, one of the, the two of the newest uh, doctors of the church, proclaimed as such by Pope Benedict XVI, who uh, has, I think, a special fondness for her. And uh, as we get to know her, uh, we certainly can understand why he holds her in such great repute and, and such uh, great respect. Uh, it's easy to overlook the fact that in her lifetime, she was called the Sybil of the Rhine, and throughout that, the whole of the 12th century in which she lived, uh, she was renowned for her visions, but she was especially loved and respected for her wisdom, the greatest minds of her age, and of course, uh, was, was renowned also for her great holiness. So this is a, a formidable figure in the medieval church, and somebody I think that we really need to look at today as we proceed with the reform and renewal of the church. I'll try to put this very sensitively um, when I say that her presence in our times is one that unfortunately was relegated maybe into a back corner by many because of those who try to hijack in some ways her spirituality to try to move forward to certain agendas? Yes, I think that that's a, a very uh, diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, Hildegard, in the last uh, 10 years or so, and, and Pope Benedict XVI, uh, I think, helped lead the charge in this, has been reclaimed by the, mm -hmm. the church. Her authentic writings, her authentic spirituality, and especially her love for the church and her obedience to the authority of the church have all been recaptured reclaimed for the benefit of the entire church. It's absolutely true that uh, over the previous decades, uh, much as we saw with uh, a, a few others, I'm thinking, for example, of um, Julian of Norwich uh, in, in England, who lived a little after Hildegard, uh, were sort of kidnapped uh, by those with uh, real agendas to try to portray Hildegard as a proto-radical feminist, as uh, somebody who was uh, hating of the church, uh, who attempted to resist the teachings of the church, who rejected the teachings of the church. And yet, uh, uh, as we 
read her, as we come to appreciate her more fully, uh, I think we can grasp her extraordinary gifts, but also her remarkable love for the church. She was one who allowed herself to be subjected to obedience. That that wonderful, can we say it, a virtue as well as a discipline. Absolutely, yeah. I, it, it's one of those ironies, again, to use that word, that um, here was somebody who was falsely claimed by feminists, uh, who I think would have been just shocked at the notion of herself as, as a feminist, uh, that she had instead uh, a, a genuine love for the church, a, a profound mysticism, and, and you've hit on one of the key words that we're going to be talking about with her, and that is a perfection of the virtues, a love for Christ, uh, and her obedience to the church, to the, to the authority of the church in judging what is authentic and what is pure. And that, I think, holds her up as a great role model uh, today when we have so many who uh, are dissenting from the church and continue to cling to this notion of Hildegard as some sort of a herald of feminism in the church. I don't think I would understate it by saying that it was breathtaking in the fall of 2010 when then Holy Father Pope Benedict XVI began a series of Wednesday audiences on the holy women of the Middle Ages. And he began those reflections especially on those who had such deep mystical prayer experiences. He began the the audiences not with just one, but two audiences on Hildegard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he uh, has made it very clear. Uh, He certainly did this as Pope. He's done this throughout his uh, life uh, as a theologian. Somebody who wants to make certain that the Church recognizes and honors genius— uh, in all of his forms, but also profound holiness. And Pope Benedict, in that uh, the set of audiences, especially regarding Hildegard, but I mean, when we run through the, the list of uh, some of the, the great figures that uh, he was looking at, he, he talked, for example, about Julian of Norwich. He, he covered Catherine of Siena, um, Bridget of Sweden, Elizabeth of Hungary, and of course, Angela of Foligno, who just recently was... Um, canonized through equivalent canonization by Pope Francis, the gifts to the church, the contributions to the life of the church, to the holiness of the church by these remarkable women, uh, it's something that uh, we need to to pause, and and I really appreciate the fact that you you want to do that, uh, to credit Pope Benedict for doing that, but also, to again, to turn our, our gaze to these extraordinary women. And it is significant that Hildegard of Bingen was included in that list. If you could, give us a a sense of her time period. Well, she uh, grew up uh, in Germany and uh, really was a member of the German nobility. And she belonged to uh, the German feudal system. In other words, her her father was a, a wealthy, powerful landowner at a time when owning land was everything. His name was Hildebert, and his wife, Matilda, or Mechtilda, uh, were both in the service of, as the feudal system worked, a, a more powerful lord. 
by the name of Megenhard, who is Count of Spanheim. Now, these are, are sort of dazzling names uh, to people today. But what's really most important is that medieval feudal life in Germany was, was one of service. It was one of status. But this reflects on the, the upbringing of Hildegard, I think, in a couple of ways. First, because she was born into this noble environment, she had the opportunity to learn, uh, to understand what it was to command, uh, to know what it was to have special status. And yet, from her earliest times, uh, she displayed extraordinary intelligence, uh, but also very powerful spiritual gifts and a desire for humility. Now, her parents uh, were very much status conscious, as so many of the, the members of the feudal nobility were, and yet uh, they recognized in their daughter uh, the fact that uh, she was called to something else other than uh, sort of the, the life of, of service and of status uh, that they enjoyed. And for that reason, they offered her up, as was the custom of the time, uh, as sort of a, a, a tithe to the church, as an oblate uh, to uh, the, the nearby Benedictine Abbey of Disabodenburg. And she was uh, only eight years old at the time, but that was the custom. And her life changed from that minute. But it was, I think, the greatest gift that her parents could have given her because they placed her in exactly the environment uh, that she needed the most to really foster, to develop uh, her spiritual life. And all of the skills that she was given by God uh, that she came to possess as an abbess and as a leading figure of the medieval church. The stability of the Benedictine rule, that way of devoting time in your day, not only to work, the discipline of action, but then also to prayer, it really served her so well, didn't it? It did. And especially crucial in this was the fact that, uh, as was, again, that the, the, the wisdom of the Benedictines, they gave her over for her initial training to uh, other women who were experienced in life, uh, in the spiritual life, in the discipline of the Benedict Benedictine community, but also in the spiritual life uh, that they saw, I think, immediately uh, needed to be developed in her. Uh, there was the, the first by a, a widow by the name of Uda, and then more important was uh, another woman by the name of Jutta of Spanheim, who was the daughter of Count Stefan of Spanheim. Now, why is, is it that notable? It, it, it's notable because in, in Jutta, not only did Hildegard receive a kind of spiritual mother, a, as well as a spiritual guide and mentor. But Yuta was, being the daughter of the nobility, clearly aware of Hildegard's background, as well as uh, her immense potential in dealing with other members of the nobility uh, in future years. The, the position of abbess uh, was one of great power. We don't encounter abbesses and abbots very much anymore. And yet, because of the status of the, the Benedictine order, uh, because of the, the lands that it accumulated, but also because of its importance to the life of the community wherever you had a Benedictine monastery, 
abbots and abbesses uh, acquired and wielded great influence in, in society and in political life, economic life, and then, of course, their, their spiritual power. And Utah would have understood all of this. And over the next decades, she helped train Hildegard in a life of prayer, of asceticism, but also of training the mind and the personality uh, to command, uh, to lead with charity, uh, and then, of course, to have the level of learning uh, that was the best they could give her uh, to prepare her for the immense tasks that, that lay ahead. Let's talk about some of those tasks. It's an incredible time for monastery life, and it would be affected by her example of how it could be transformed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Hildegard always uh, seriously underestimated and, and, and sort of downplayed uh, her own learning. She referred to herself as an inducte mulier or an unlearned woman. Uh, and, and yet, uh, while she may have had sort of formal academic training that, that one might think of today, uh, she nevertheless uh, understood Latin, certainly uh, the use of the Psalter. Uh, the, the Latin language, of course, was uh, the, the language of the church. It was the, so much of the common language of, uh, the, of ecclesiastical life. Uh, but uh, she also continued to develop in her understanding of people, of prayer life. And in dealing with and helping to train other noble women uh, who were sent to this community. And so when she was given, as they say, she took the veil uh, from the Bishop of Bomberg uh, when she was about 15 years old. From that point on, we can see a direct line of progress and advancement for Hildegard. This wasn't something that uh, she was craving, but it was something I think that she took to quite naturally, both because of her training, both because of her family background, but also just because of her genius level IQ. I say genius level IQ because uh, if you spend much time reading the works of Hildegard, the, the unbelievable diversity of which she was capable, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, uh, you appreciate the sheer level of her, of her intelligence and how in that community life, in the wisdom of the Benedictine life, they were able to recognize that, to harness it, to train it, and then put it to the good of the community and the good of the wider church, not just for the church's benefit, but to make of Hildegard's immense gifts exactly that, uh, a gift to the church, a gift to the community, but especially a gift to God. And so we're seeing her move rapidly from a, a, a humble young girl somebody who was then trained uh, to become a, a teacher or a prioress of the sisters. And then, of course, uh, at the, around the age of 38, uh, she became the actual head of the, the community of women at Disabodenburg. I think it's so important to honor that intellectual aspect of Hildegard. I mean, the fact that she would have this ability like a sponge to absorb everything around her, as <laughs> though <laughs> so it seems. and also to wed that with her spiritual life and those mystical experiences. And when she had, how can we say this? It, it was very unique in that it wasn't 
that she would have a vision of something. She would even say she doesn't see things ocularly. I mean, something that she would um, have in front of her. No, it was something much more compelling in which it incorporated all of her. I mean, not only the the spiritual aspect, but it, it brought in to play all that intellectual knowledge so that you would end up getting tomes and tomes and tomes of writing. Yes, that that's exactly it. Uh, for her, uh, while she was certainly conscious of uh, her limited education, she understood that uh, the knowledge that she possessed came from what she always referred to in, in the Latin as the umbra viventis luminis, or the shadow of the living light. And for her, uh, this is not something that uh, she was too eager or all that willing to write about, which is, as, as you certainly know, Chris, of, of all people, that's one of the great signs of the genuineness of, of the spiritual gifts, that she was reluctant uh, to talk about this extraordinary series of visions and mystical experiences that she began having as a young girl, but chose not to speak of uh, until she actually began to share them uh, with Yuta, uh, then with her spiritual director, who is a monk by the name of Volmar, who uh, really, I think, was a good influence on her. And only uh, when she was really in her 40s uh, did she begin to describe and to transcribe so much of what she saw. And part of that, I think, was because here was somebody who was receiving these, these visions, these mystical experiences from a very young age, but who wanted to ruminate on them, who, who wanted to meditate on them. And for her, then, it was the command to talk about these. And as she wrote uh, in the, the, the Shivyas, one of her, her greatest of her writings, she talks about the fiery light coming out of a cloudless sky that flooded her entire mind and inflamed, she said, her whole heart and her whole breast like a flame. And she understood at that moment the exposition of the books, of the Psalter, the Gospel, uh, the, the Old and the New Testaments. And it was it by command uh, that she made these visions uh, known. But it was, again, out of humility, out of obedience to the voice that she did this. And the full scale of what she saw and then what she began to teach, to transcribe, uh, took up almost the whole of the rest of her life. And yet, even at that moment, uh, as she did so, what was she doing? She sought additional counsel in the discernment of the authenticity and the origins of her visions of the, the truth of what she was seeing. Why? Because she was concerned that they might not be of God or that they were mere illusions or even possible delusions uh, brought on uh, by herself or by the evil one. And that commitment to obedience, I, I think, stands her uh, in such great standing in the history of the church among the mystics. But it also tells us that as is often has been the case with some of the mystics in history, there have been those you know, positivists and, and 
scientists and psychologists who try to dismiss these mystical experiences. In Hildegard's case, uh, they what have they claimed? They have uh, said that she was receiving these simply uh, uh, psychological aberrations or they were various forms of uh, neurological problems leading up to migraines or a host of other possible uh, issues. And yet, uh, the, the clarity of her visions, the specificity of them, and also the theological depth of them demolish any such claims uh, by scientists today. Uh, and instead really forces to look at what exactly she was seeing. I don't doubt that there will be many out there over the next century, particularly, that could achieve their doctorates just by writing on different aspects of her work. And if you are at all a student of the Benedictine rule, you can begin to see in those visions those connections with the life that she lived out. I mean, it, this was very organic. It wasn't like this were just coming, it, though they seem foreign to us when you potentially, when you begin to look at those visions, if you understand the time, if you have a proper translation and you know the rule, it, you begin to see a little bit better the clarity of the, what she's communicating. Yes, exactly. And, and we also appreciate uh, the the staggering scale of what she saw. I mean, she saw the mystery of God. She saw creation, the Trinity, incarnation, the fall, redemption. Uh, she beheld as well the sacraments. She understood the virtues. She appreciated angels. She saw vice. Uh, she saw, as, as Pope Benedict XVI uh, de- talked when he, he in his letter proclaiming her a, a doctor of the church, what did he say? He says that the range of vision of the mystic of Bingen was not limited to treating individual matters, but was an, a global synthesis of the Christian faith. So he talks about that this is a compendium of salvation history, literally from the beginning of the universe until the very eschatological consummation of, of all of creation. So as he, as he says, his God's decision to bring about the work of creation is the first stage on a long journey that unfolds from the constitution of the heavenly hierarchy until it reaches the fall of the rebellious angels and the sin of our first parents. So she's touching on the very core of who we are and the the most important aspects of redemption, of the kingdom of God, and the last judgment. The the scale of this, again, I think is is difficult for much of a modern mind to comprehend. And it tells us that we have to be very careful from our perch here and surrounded by technology and modernity that we perhaps have lost our ability to see the sheer scale of salvation history, that this abbess sitting on the Rhine in the 12th century was able to, and then was able to communicate it with language that is surprisingly modern. Oh, let's talk about that language, not only with words, but with music and with with art. I mean, this this woman was able to express herself in all manners of creative activity. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is somebody that uh, designed 
created her own kind of language, uh, sort of a, a combination of Latin and German, which is a medieval German. But she also composed hymns, more than 70 hymns. She uh, composed sequences and antiphons, uh, what became known as the Symphonia Harmoniae Celestium uh, Revelationum, or the, the, the Symphony of the Harmony of Heavenly Revelations. And not only were they simply composed because, well, her community would need music, they were very much a reflection of the things that she had seen. And uh, she wrote a, a very memorable letter uh, in 1178 to the prelates of the, the city of Mainz. And she talks about the fact that music stirs our hearts and engages our souls in ways we can't really describe. So, but we're taken beyond our earthly banishment back to the divine melody Adam knew when he sang with the angels when he was whole in God before his exile. So here she's once again taking something as seemingly simple as a hymn and connecting it to the vision, connecting it to salvation history, and connecting to something far deeper theologically. So her, her hymns ranged from the creation to the Holy Spirit, uh, but she was especially fond of composing music in honor of the saints and especially the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yeah, as we're coming to a conclusion on this particular episode, I just I don't want to miss out on just a, a little bit of a tidbit. We could have called her a doctor. I mean, in a very real way, a physician. This this woman, this wonderful gift to the church, gift to all of us. I mean, she had that appreciation of creation, and actually, even on how it would work to heal. Yes, yes. Again, we we uh, it, it's hard to overestimate that her her genius. Why? Because. Beyond her visions, beyond her uh, abilities as a composer, here was somebody uh, who combined her genius with practical need. Now, her community had specific needs uh, for her gifts. And so what did she do? She, she wrote books on natural, the natural sciences. She wrote books on medicine. She wrote books on music. Uh, she looked at the study of nature. Uh, to assist her sisters. So the result was um, a natural history, uh, a book on causes and cures, a book on how to put medicine together. And it's a fascinating reading because she, she talks about plants and the elements and trees and, and birds and mammals and reptiles. But all of it was to reduce all of this knowledge to very practical purposes, uh, the medicinal values of natural phenomena and then she also wrote in, in a book on, on causes and cures, which was written from the, the traditional medieval understanding of the humors. Uh, she lists 200 diseases or conditions uh, with different cures and remedies that uh, tend mostly to be herbal uh, with through recipes for how to make them. This is all from somebody who at that time uh, was an abbess of not just one, but two monasteries along the Rhine. Uh, who was also being consulted on an almost daily basis by the great figures of the church, from popes to kings to common people who came to her for help. Uh, and this is somebody who at that time was also working for her own perfection in, in the spiritual life and in the, the perfection of the virtues. 
and who was also continuing to reflect and meditate on the incredible vision she was receiving. So this is uh, a full life, but it was a life given completely to the service of others. And of course, you'll have to have two episodes. We do. Thank you so much, Dr. Bunsen. Looking forward to part two, Chris. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.